Justice Minister Helen McEntee is calling time on our licensing laws. We have a system that is completely outdated and just not fit for purpose. Under the proposed legislation, alcohol will be served in nightclubs until 5am. I want, and I think most people want, a modern, vibrant, growing, cultural nighttime economy. Make us more like Berlin than Bray. Over the last few decades, Berlin established itself as one of the best nightlife destinations in the whole world. The move will consolidate our licensing laws and repeal some of the more historical ones, like the Habitual Drunkards Act of 1879. Other outdated legislation includes the Public Dance Hall Act of 1935. That was enacted after bishops decided Irish people needed shielding from the evils of jazz. It wasn't Irish music. It's foreign music, you know. There's a strong urge to keep out the tide of foreign filth. The parish priest of Mohill in the 1930s was very vocal in his opposition to jazz and the anti-jazz movement uh, was launched there. I'm Conor Pope and this is in the news from the Irish Times. Today, how exactly did we end up with our antiquated licensing laws? Historian Jermot Ferreter explains. Jermot, we might start in the 19th century, if that's okay with you. And we're going to start with the Habitual Drunkards Act. That comes from, I think, 1879. So it was a British law. But what did this British law say about drunkards and about uh, licensing legislation in this country? Well, the 19th century context is crucial here. You're absolutely right about that. The identification of drunkenness as a problem and public drunkenness as a particular problem and habitual drunkards referred to those who were a nuisance, a public nuisance, because they were falling around the place drunk and they were causing uh, inconvenience and they were uh, regarded as people who needed to be taken off the streets and institutionalised if necessary. But habitual drunkards legislation was also about prosecuting and penalising those who were facilitating the habitual drunkards. So you are not allowed to serve drink to a drunk person. You are not allowed to assist them. But it was also, the Habitual Drunkards Act was also about assisting the spouses, those who were habitual drinkers. So there was a welfare dimension to it as well. And what we discover, I suppose, in the 19th century is that an awful lot of the focus uh, is on the idea of, of drunkenness as a public health problem, you know. And, and that feeds in then to licensing legislation as well. Uh, and it's estimated by the early 20th century that the the licensing acts are, are spread over about 25 different statutes, you know. So okay. it becomes quite, it becomes a real maze. But the broader context there is fascinating in the 19th century because for all the focus on drunkenness, and public drunkenness was a, a big problem. I'll give you an example. Between 1891 and 1892, there were... 100,000 arrests for public drunkenness in Ireland alone. 100,000? 100,000. So it it was identified as a huge problem. But there's also a very strong focus on temperance and Mm. abstaining from drink. And like this is the fascinating thing about looking at Ireland and drink for all the focus on drunkenness. And it was a problem, obviously. You have this big drive in the 19th century to get people to abstain from alcohol alcohol altogether. You'll be familiar with the name Father Theobald Matthew. I am. Uh, who, who was the big temperance crusader from the 1830s. So this is pre-famine Ireland. And, you know, historians have estimated that anywhere between 700,000 and 2 million people took the pledge 
the father Matthew pledge. Now it wasn't sustained, and of course for for many it's just a passing fad. And there were there were always Irish solutions to Irish problems. I mean Daniel O'Connell would have been the most famous nationalist icon from that pre-famine era, and of course he was always encouraging. Uh, the pledge on Father Matthew, um, but he had to take alcohol himself for medicinal purposes, <laughs> uh, which was very convenient. But he's also conscious of how important brewing and distilling mm. is for the Irish economy. And we know, uh, again, from, from figures that are available, that the brewing and distilling industry tripled its output between 1850 and the First World War uh, in Ireland. So it's a massive business and it brings in a lot of a, a lot of money. But there is that huge emphasis on on abstention. And one of the outcomes of that is another very important piece of legislation, the Sunday Closing Act of 1878. And that was the big focus. Get the pubs shut on Sundays because people cannot be spending their leisure day in the pub and drinking to excess and they're very senior church figures including cardinal paul cullen who was the you know the the dominant Mm. um voice in the church in uh, the post-famine period very vocal about the need to shut pubs uh, on a sunday and that happens but tell me about the specifics of this legislation. I mean, did it set a closing time? What did the actual 1879 and the 1878 legislation actually say? The whole point of, of 1878 was about shutting all of the pubs on a Sunday, except in the metropolitan areas. Now, the places that had metropolitan status in Ireland were the cities of Cork and Dublin and Belfast and Limerick and Waterford. So the pubs could open for a couple of hours in those metropolitan centres, but not in general. And there were exceptions, of course, for bona fide travellers. This is the other great. <laughs> yeah. This is the other great invention. You know, those who are travelling. And I mean, there's a serious purpose to it. Obviously, people who are travelling are, are deemed to be in need of refreshment. Um, but how you define a bona fide, genuine traveller <laughs> remains hugely problematic. So th- that was the, the Sunday closing. The Holy Hour comes at a later stage and it's not really a holy hour at all there are some very interesting characters who get involved in licensing legislation after we've achieved our independence uh, and after the end of the civil war including kevin o'higgins who was the state's first minister for justice Mm. and he was concerned about the amount of workers who were drinking and drinking their wages and this was a big problem because some people were paid uh, in drink as well Uh, this is the year before a cash dominated society and the concern was that sometimes people were being paid on a friday say at lunchtime and then they headed to the pub so the idea uh, from from the legislation of the 1920s the licensing legislation was to try and prevent workers from Mm. Uh, having that access. It was actually half two to half three uh, was what we came uh, to call the holy hour. Uh, And there were there were two pieces of legislation there, 1924 and 1927. That's when they were tightening up uh, licensing legislation, reducing the opening hours uh, and trying to to put this Sunday, uh, not just Sunday closing uh, or, or limited Sunday hours, but also this afternoon closing hour that became known as holy hour. And of course, that was open to widespread abuse as well. But there's an interesting thing here because like I grew up in Galway Mm. and in Galway there was never a holy hour when I was a kid and I was far too young to be going to the pubs anyway. But in Dublin, the holy hour persisted right up until the 80s and even into the 1990s. Well, I mean, officially it went in 1988, but one of the key questions was who's going to police it? 
or how is it policed? You know, it, it's easier perhaps to turn a blind eye uh, in areas outside of the main cities. There are more, there's, there's a heavier police presence, obviously, uh, in, in the bigger cities. And the pubs are perhaps being monitored more closely. But the existence of widespread abuses or the turning of blind eyes uh, was was well known. And there are frequent complaints about different standards or different practices applying to different parts of the country. And of course, in the midst of all this, you have a remarkably powerful licensed vintners association. Mm. I mean, the licensed vintners who represented a very substantial and, and, and powerful lobby, they had actually come into existence in 1817. So they're very well organized uh, from the early 19th century and they remain so. Uh, and they complain bitterly about some of these uh, intoxicating liquor commissions and the recommendations that are coming from them, including this focus on closing the pubs on St. Patrick's Day. And like that was deemed to be primarily a religious holiday. Mm. It wasn't supposed to be about the youth of Ireland puking and pissing their way over their native towns. Uh, and the licensed fitness were concerned that that, St. Patrick's Day closing had actually been legislated for um, in in the 1920s because originally it was a voluntary thing. And it was very interesting because groups like the Gaelic League and the GAA came together in the early 20th century uh, and pushed for a voluntary closing of pubs on St. Patrick's Day. And that was the big focus from 1904. Um, And the, the publicans signed up to it and they did voluntarily close, or some of them did anyway. But Interestingly, the founder of Sinn Féin, Arthur Griffith, complained that closing pubs on St. Patrick's Day was an affront to working class people. Mm. Uh, And there's an interesting class uh, dimension uh, to this debate as well. But anyway, the Dáil legislated uh, for the pubs to close on St. Patrick's Day in 1927. And there's a bit of a pushback then from the the licensed vintners in the 1930s and eventually uh, in in 1941, uh, there's a bill introduced to allow Patrick's Day opening, but there was considerable church opposition uh, to, to that particular development. The air in Paris is an aperitif itself, so let's whet our appetites and eat. Let's get down to that most serious and essential of Parisian pastimes. If you look at the rest of Europe, Europe had a very liberal approach to licensing and to drink all the way through the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, right up till today. What made Ireland and the UK the outliers when it came to these restrictive licensing laws? Part of the issue in Ireland is just the amount of licensed premises. One of the interesting observations that was made by the writer A.E., otherwise known as George Russell, in 1925. So this is just after the new state, the foundations of the new state after the Civil War. And he said, it's astonishing how many licensed premises we have. Ireland had almost 17,000 licensed premises. And when you break down the figures, you can see that Ireland had a licensed uh, premises for every 263 of its population, compared to England and Wales that had a licensed premise for every 415 of its population. And of course, George Russell broke it down further by going to individual towns like Strokestown and Balahadreen and Mohill in County Leitrim. And he says, you know, you take Mohill now. They have a pub for every 26 people uh, in Mohill. And he broke it down like that. And the point he was making, of course, is that we did have an excessive number of licensed premises and they needed to be cut back. If you look at Ireland today, 
the, the, the most recent figures I have access to would suggest that there are about um, 7,000 pubs, about 3,000 off licenses, and then hotels and, and restaurants, mm. perhaps another 3,000 licenses between them. So we're still well below what we were. An awful lot of them were kips. Uh, there was an intoxicating liquor commission in the House of Lords in 1898 that identified all these abuses. Licenses were granted far too easily. There was the packing of benches when it came to justices making these decisions on endorsements and the granting of licenses. There was too much leniency there and, and blind eyes being turned. So part of it is about cleaning cleaning up uh, and trying to get rid of, of an excessive number of licenses, but also trying to introduce some kind of, of standards uh, in relation to, to to licensed premises. So one of the reasons we're an outlier is just because of the amount of licensed premises that we have. But what about all the bistros and the wine bars in Paris or in, or in Spain or in Italy? I mean, I'm just wondering, was there a moral dimension to this? That of course, in yeah. Spain and France and Italy, they were far more relaxed about drinking. And as a result, they developed a maturity when it comes to alcohol that we lacked and we still lack that maturity when it comes to alcohol. That's a very important point. And I mean, you're talking there as well about the association of food and drink. Uh, the two go together. Mm. And there was some very interesting debate over the years about the degree to which Irish drinking was about drinking. <laughs> it wasn't It wasn't about meals. Uh, no, absolutely you know, and, not. And I mean, even at a later stage, I mean, you remember this from your own hell-raising days, Connor. You know, if you were going to a nightclub uh, the reason they were able to have the nightclub licenses was the because they were, they were required to provide a substantial <laughs> meal. Yeah, a substantial meal. I ate many of them, Jeremy. I ate many of them. Yeah, and the reason why, you know, people were able to eat them, uh, <laughs> partly because they were starving, because <laughs> they'd been boozing on empty stomachs, but also because you'd eat anything exactly. at that hour in the morning. So, But again, you know, the point being that it was kind of tokenistic, but that was the way uh, you got around it. But this was the question that was being asked from the 19th century. Why do the Irish drink the way that they do? Do they drink differently uh, from other people? Um, and, you know, even when it came to addiction, there's a recognition that, again, Ireland is a particular problem. A lot of people won't be aware that Alcoholics Anonymous opened its first European branch in Dublin in 1946, uh, which, again, is, is very revealing, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. Uh, about, about the extent to which Ireland was seen as a particular problem. And yet there were still an awful lot of Irish people who didn't drink at all. I mean, we know by 1968 that 42% of Irish adults did not drink at all. And that was because of the pioneers and, and, and the pledge that, I, I don't know about you, Jeremy, but I took the pledge when I was 12. But that's the moral dimension you're talking about. You know, I mean, the whole point of taking the pledge was that you were doing it in devotion to the Sacred Heart. You mm. know, the pioneers were established in 1898 and it's coming at that time in the late 19th century where there's an intense focus on, you know, public drunkenness, and but also the need for sacrifice and a moral focus. And it's very gendered. A lot of people don't know that the Pioneers was originally for women only, uh, but it proved to be so popular that <laughs> they had to bring the men in as well. Now, yeah. that's an interesting moral question as well, because women were identified as the, the people who could lead the way. But if they fell, the mm. fallen women, not just in relation to pregnancy outside of marriage, the fallen women as a result of drink, they were deemed to be in a category mm. of their own. That was a much greater transgression for a woman to become a drunkard than for a man to become a drunkard. Even the idea that women would be seen publicly drinking was really frowned upon. And there's an intense religiosity and, and, and moral 
focus when it comes to uh, drink. And you'll know yourself, I mean, even up to relatively recently, it was frowned upon for women to be drinking in pubs. It was yeah. frowned upon for women to be drinking pints uh, in particular. And there were pubs that would not serve women. Now, in that piece that you wrote in the Irish Times, you, you, you mentioned the Public Dance Halls Act of 1935. What was that about and why was that so significant? This is, again, part of the reaction to perceived excesses, a product of moral panic. There's a concern about what's going on in the dance halls. Now, the dance halls were hugely uh, popular for understandable reasons. You know, at a time when people didn't have any recreational outlets. And what was worrying, in particular, the Catholic Church in the 1930s, was the lack of supervision. So it's not necessarily mm. what's going on in the dance hall. It's what's going on around the dance hall. Because these places were not necessarily serving drink, uh, but there seemed to be a lot of drunk people in them. So the demand by the mid-1930s is for a tightening up of the process through which you can be granted a license. Uh, that's what the Dance Halls Act was about. It made it more difficult to get a license. It allowed the district justices who would grant these licenses to attach uh, conditions and more stringent conditions and to refuse uh, to grant licenses. And I mean, implementing it was was patchy and tricky. Mm. It meant, I suppose, there were licensed dances and unlicensed dances. So it didn't solve all the problems they were identifying. But it's a product, again, of, of that climate. And again, I mean, you know, we can look back through a 21st century secular lens and, and identify this as being almost hysterical. It's not. It's very much of its time. And there were those who were worried, too, about the fire regulation, mm. The danger uh, when it came to unsuitable buildings, noise, you know, uh, people who were living in uh, close proximity to these dance halls had issues about that as well. You know, antisocial behaviour, as we would have called it um, at a later era. I mean, they are genuine concerns uh, and the moral climate there is is very much of its time. So, I mean, we shouldn't be reading backwards. It wasn't yeah. unusual uh, during that era for there you know, to be demands to, to tighten things up. But it's also, I suppose, about trying to sustain what's really a myth. Uh, and the myth is that what is going on in other parts of the world is not suitable for Ireland. Because the dance hall uh, era uh, and the demand for legislation, that coincides with a great hostility towards jazz music. Yeah, talk to me about that. What did the church and the Gaelic League have against jazz music? It wasn't Irish music. It's foreign music, you know. There's a strong urge to keep out the tide of foreign filth. Uh, we have, you know, a, a regime that is preoccupied with censorship of literature, with what they call indecency and obscenity. Um, we have censorship of films during that era. And we have this concern about imported slush, as it was often referred to. <laughs> Uh, and they also used a language about jazz music now that you just could not use today and would not use today. Uh, it's the music of savages, mm. uh, many believe. And the Gaelic League is quite vocal in relation to the need to promote Irish music as opposed to relying on these uh, foreign imports. And there's actually an anti-jazz campaign 
launched in Mohill. I mentioned Mohill earlier yeah. on. Poor El, poor El Mohill. Had had all the pubs, but none of the jazz. Yeah, well, Mohill is a, is a lovely town, uh, but the parish priest of Mohill uh, in the 1930s was very vocal in his opposition to jazz and the anti-jazz movement uh, was launched there and it developed quite uh, a crescendo. Uh, but as I've often uh, commented in relation to all of these censorious impulses, they're also there because people want this. They want access. And, you know, John McGarhan, the, the, the late novelist, used to comment royally that for all of this focus, you know, on prohibition, on banning, on censorship, in some respects, the Irish remained fundamentally anarchic in their everyday behaviour. Now, he was being slightly tongue in cheek, but the point he was making was that perhaps it was skin deep. You know, the obedience, um, those who were attending to their religious duties uh, faithfully. Why was there the constant need to denounce their excesses and denounce their imbibing and denounce their fornication if they were such law abiding, fearful Catholics? I suppose. And, and you've actually touched on this already. You said like it, it, it's it's too easy to look at what was happening in the 30s, 40s and 50s through the 21st century prism. But I wonder, did the licensing laws and the restrictions on alcohol actually do the state some service, to borrow a phrase? That's a tricky one. Clearly, there needed to be a recognition at the beginning of of the state that you had to have a regime that was suitable to Ireland's new status and to Ireland's new situation. In other words, we had a whole range of inherited uh, laws and inherited uh, licensing legislation, and there needed to be a domestic focus on what was suitable for Ireland. And obviously the St. Patrick's Day closing, um, the Sunday closing, the restricted hours, you know, that 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 was in keeping too with the close alliance between uh, Catholic priorities and and the state's priorities. But I think you've also got to acknowledge that people like Kevin O'Higgins, whatever about the civil war politics of that era, they were coming at this from a position of genuine concern, you know, that there needed to be a recognition that it was not a good idea Mm. for breadwinners uh, to be spending their wages in the pub. And you needed to do things to try and, you know, change that habit and change that cycle. But isn't it kind of a poor reflection of Irish men in particular, and it was men, that they had to be told by the state, listen, lads, it's 11 o'clock on a Tuesday. You need to go home to your family. Like, it seems kind of depressing that that was at the core of this, these rules. We have to protect the Irish family by making sure men don't drink all of their wages and stay in the pub until five o'clock in the morning. That's a poor reflection of men in Ireland at the time. It is, but it's also about them seeing the pub as a refuge, that they were entitled to their space and to their refuge and their preserve. It it is very much about maleness and it's about, you know, the bonds in some respects between men. But, you know, it's also about the alluring power of Mm. drink. Uh, Again, there's there's nothing Irish about that. We have our own particular relationship with it that might be different uh, from other countries. Um, But again, that that sense of men uh, needing that outlet. There's a very strong uh, gender division of roles. You know, there are very large families in a lot of cases and it's deemed to be the woman's role Mm. uh, to look after the home. One of the reasons why the Pioneer Total Abstinence Association was originally founded was, again, uh, to try and ensure 
that there was an opportunity for men to find alternative outlets. So it wasn't just about the, the religious devotion that was that was the driving force, but there was also an attempt to establish temperance outlets or clubs mm. that people could go to where there was no alcohol served. And there was an awareness from the 19th century that instead of just banning or, or, or seeking to prohibit, you actually needed to provide alternatives. Uh, and one of the reasons why there's quite a, a focus on the cultural organisations like the GA and the Gaelic League in the late 19th and the early 20th century is to provide an alternative outlet, you know, so that men and women in the Gaelic League, for example, could meet together, could socialise together. It was one of the few opportunities they had to do that. For a lot of women, their only social outlet were religious outlets. They used to go to the prayer groups. You know, they used to find their time outside the home in a religious setting. So we have to consider that as well, that there were those who were alive to the need to provide alternatives. And I suppose you're right. There wasn't. It's not like they could turn on Netflix or go onto Twitter or whatever <laughs> it might be. There was very little for people to do outside of the pub. I wonder now, though, have, have we moved entirely beyond the need for any of those restrictions and, and laws? Or do you think we still have the problems that people had in the 1920s and 30s when it comes to our relationship with alcohol? Yes, we do. Um, we have a different version of them now. The context has changed, but the fundamental issue of abuse and uh, excess and the damage that's done as a, role, as a result has not changed. You know, we can't talk uh, about a, a maturation to the point where we can handle these issues, um, that, you know, there needs to be a free-for-all because, you know, this is now about us as a, a state 100 years on being able to handle. Mm. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, there's still clearly an awful lot of problems in relation to uh, abuse of drink. Uh, and you've got to look at some of the busiest places at the weekend are the accident and emergency departments. And a lot of that is down to abuse of alcohol. Jeremy, thanks very much for talking to us. Fascinating as ever. Pleasure. That's it for today. This episode of In the News was produced by Aideen Finnegan. 